Well, that was an encouraging worship time. Before I get into uh, our time in God's Word together, I just wanted to uh, congratulate uh, Alec Villarreal is over here. And Alec is leaving sometime soon, I'm not sure exactly when, to go do an internship uh, with Mark Driscoll at uh, Mars Hill Church in Seattle. And so uh, Alec's been in our church for a long time, and he's spreading his wings and and moving on. And so congratulations to you, Alec. We hope that it's a uh, great experience for you. And then secondly, uh, today is a, this service is a special one for me uh, because seated right here in the second row are old friends of my family. Uh, this is Brian and Diane Carlson. And Brian worked with my dad at John Deere. My dad, 40-year career at John Deere as an engineer. And uh, Brian is, is an engineer, still working there. Um, but years ago... When I was growing up, I don't even remember when. What's that? You were 12. I was 12. <laughs> so that would have been 1980. <laughs> uh, through a relationship with my dad and through some Bible study and, and witnessing, Brian became a Christian. And I remember that vividly and just the change in his life. And then through Brian, his wife, uh, Diane, became a Christian and their their family, their children, and they've been following the Lord so many years. They've never been here before, but they were here. They're here for a wedding in the area, and so they were able to come today. And so it's really special for me to have uh, Brian and Diane here uh, today. And can we just welcome them to Bethel Church? All right. Last week we were challenged by the Apostle Paul's example during what was supposed to be for him just kind of a hangout time there in the city of Athens. He was just supposed to wait to meet some companions, but what he did for us was he provided a template for any Christian who wants to change the world or at the very least to change their world. And just to remind us of what we saw last week, we saw that The first thing that happened for Paul as he walked around this city is that his heart broke. His heart broke for a city given over completely to idols. His heart broke for people who were made to know the God of heaven and were settling for worshiping uh, man-made idols. No gods at all. His heart broke. And one of my takeaways from the message last week was John Stott's commentary that One reason that we don't do what Paul did is that we don't feel what Paul felt. And to be challenged to look around at the world around us and to see all the idols and all the things people are scurrying around hoping to find ultimate meaning from and to realize that, A, they don't find meaning from those, and secondly, apart from Christ, there is no salvation and there is heaven or hell for every living human being and for our heart to break with love and compassion for the world around us. The second thing we saw is that uh, Paul carried the gospel everywhere. His response to this was to take the gospel to the synagogue, to take the gospel to the marketplace, to take the gospel to the center of education and, and, uh, and the intelligentsia. He took the gospel everywhere. The gospel is appropriate everywhere. It has something to say in every dimension of life and culture. 
We saw that Paul utilized portals for gospel messaging. He saw an an altar that said to the unknown God. And he stood before them and said, the God that you acknowledge that you don't know, I'd like to be the one to tell you about. And he told them about it. He told the big story, the big story of uh, that, that Mike prayed earlier here that we're going to communicate to our young people this week that there's a creator and that creator made everything and that we were made by him and we were made for him and yet we rebelled against him and there was sin and therefore death. But there is redemption because God sends a rescue and that rescue is his son and his son came to redeem us from the sins that we've committed against him and to provide forgiveness of sins and was resurrected, died on the cross, resurrected on the third day. And he is the savior of the world and all who trust in him will be saved. The big story. Use first personal plural pronouns. It's not you, 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 you. It's we, I, and me. That we all need this. We're all in this together. There's none of us that's any better than another. We're all sinners in need of grace. And then finally, walks every road to Jesus. Eventually, we have to get to the person and the work of Christ because there is no other name under heaven whereby men might be saved, Acts also says. And so therefore... Our responsibility eventually in the true relationships and discussions and all the rest is to bring them to the point where they hear and hopefully understand and believe who Christ was and what he did. And Paul did that at the end of that message uh, before he was cut off. Now today what I want to do is I want to talk with you about what priorities lie behind the kind of individual who would do something like this. In fact, I think maybe I could have preached these two messages, the other flipped them around, and to say what are the heart priorities and then how do those heart priorities show themselves in qualities or traits, but we're doing it the other way and God is providentially sovereign. So we'll just stress this is the way that it was supposed to be done. Now, we are in a series on uh, the book of Acts entitled A Church in Transition. And the reason that we're doing this is that we are also a church in transition. And so we're looking at the early church and saying, what did they have to go through? How did they have to flex and and adapt and shape who they were in order to fulfill what Jesus had told them to do in the Great Commission? And it's kind of a mirror for us. We're looking in the mirror and saying, okay, there's a church in transition. How about us? And what we see in the book of Acts is that that early church... Uh, went through tremendous transitions. They had the whole ethnic racial thing they had to get over as the, the Jewish gospel moved into the Gentile world. There was uh, conflict amongst the leadership that had to be resolved. There were doctrinal distinctions that need to, needed to be clarified. And on and on you could go. So many things the early church had to work through, and yet they did it. And today what I want to ask is, how did they do it? What were the priorities that they had deep down in their hearts that allowed them to work through such tremendous change as they went through and to remain unified and to remain a people and church squarely on mission? So to to that end today, we are in Acts chapter 20. And uh, you can turn there in your Bibles if you have one. Acts chapter 20. Here is the situation. The Apostle Paul is making his way back to Jerusalem. And as he makes his way back to Jerusalem, he's, he's carrying a gift that he has been collecting for the church at Jerusalem. 
And so he's in a little bit of a hurry. Uh, but as he makes his way back, he wants to stop and see some of the people and churches that he uh, had started and people that he loved. And he spent three years pastoring the church at Ephesus. And so high on his list was at the very least to stop and to see the leadership of the church. Uh, he knew that if he actually went to Ephesus, though, there'd be people saying, hey, why don't you come over to our house for dinner tonight? And oh, I want to get together with you tomorrow. And why don't we? And he knew it'd be all bogged down. He didn't have time. He, he, was, he was on his way. And so he sends a message to the elders and says, you guys meet me in Miletus, which was a little town not so far away where he was going to meet with them and to give them some final exhortations. And so our passage today begins in verse 18. And uh, we're going to go down until the section that, uh, that we're really studying. We're not studying the entire message. We don't have time. But we begin in verse 18. Here's what it says. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I, here's our key passage now, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. May God bless his word to us today. These verses we have in front of us, you'll see here, basically what Paul does is he, he does a summary review of the, of the nature of his ministry uh, when he was uh, with them. And you see that in the text. He says, listen, you elders, you know what I was like when I was with you. Three years he was with them. And we see in this really the, the mark of a man who is... Uh, 100% sold out for Christ. That's how we used to talk about it back in the 80s, back when I knew the Carlsons, way back when. Are you sold out for Jesus? Some of you might remember that, that kind of language. You're not a compromising Christian, I hope, that sort of thing. Well, Paul was certainly none of those things. He was, he was all in, heart, soul, body. He was all about the gospel, and he reminds them both of how he ministered day and night, the sincerity with which he, ha- with he uh, ministered to them, with tears, I told you everything that I thought would be profitable to you. And so we see here, really, a ministry that we can admire. He moves then to exhortation, and we don't have time for this, but just to touch on the fact that in verse 28 he says, pay attention to yourselves and all the flock. Remember, he's talking to the elders of the church. And he goes on to say that uh, uh, wolves are going to arise among you. And he exhorts them to be on their guard against it. I heard recently a good summary of ministries uh, that said there are three kinds of people in the church, sheep, pigs, and wolves. 
And that all pastoral ministry is, is this. Feed the sheep, rebuke the swine, and kill the wolves. And you can ask yourselves today, which of those three uh, you're in need of. Uh, but it, it's true. And that co- same kind of language Paul incorporates here. There are wolves that are going to come and are going to damage the flock. But this key verse that we're focusing on, let me read it again. However, I consider my life as of no value, worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And so we see what Paul is doing here is that he is making a comparison. It's a, it's a comparative value statement, right? There is something that is of little value or of no value to him, and there is something else that is of ultimate value to him. Can you see which is which? Look again at your Bible. What's of no value? He says, my life class together my life my life is of no value to me now by that i don't think he's saying that human life is not precious that uh that that being made in the image of god is not a a matter of great dignity and that all human life should be valued he's not talking anthropologically he is speaking here rather in terms of his own personal assessment and valuing of his rights to his life. The rights that he has to self-manage his life. The rights that he has to the things that he himself naturally would value and treasure. He says about all of those things, he says, that to me is not of any value. Now, he doesn't add commentary here, but I think that we can do so. Why was his rights to his life of no value to him? And the answer to that, simply, is that he was a Christian. You say, well, of course, he's a super Christian. No, no, he's a Christian. What does it mean to be a Christian if not that I have come to believe and embrace that my life is not ultimate, but that my Savior is truly Lord and Sovereign? And to see that He died for me and that I am believing in Him and placing my trust in Him, I am giving my life to him. So that in a way, the, the, you can view Christianity as this. Christ gives his life to us and for us. And what it means to be a Christian is that I give my life to him. So that now, as a Christian, just a normal Christian, it means that I am not viewing my life as being ultimate to me. My rights are no longer my rights. Why? Because Christ paid the price for my life. He paid the ransom price to redeem us, to buy us back. That's why Paul says, my life is not my own. I am a bond slave. Christian, you are a slave. Your rights are not yours if you believe that Christ is your Lord. 
Now, if you want to hold on to your rights, because I, I don't want to do that. My, my, my life is too precious to me. All right, that's fine. But I think in eternity, you're going to regret that. To be a Christian is to give the rights of my life to the one who gave the rights of his life to me, for me. See? And that, by the way, in that exchange, we are, we are getting the, the better end of that. All right? Now, the reason that I say this is that what I want you to see is that this is not something that the super apostle, the super Christian embraces, but it is just simple, normal, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to take up my cross and to follow him. It is essentially to say, my rights I do not view as being ultimate. They are not my, I don't live for my life. Am I in good ground there? Are we in agreement here? Okay. Now, with that said, he does say that there, it's, it's not that there, nothing is of value to him. Rather, there is something that is now of ultimate value to him. Something that has usurped his perspective of the rights to his own life. And what does he say that that is? Testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Or I might just summarize it this way. The mission, the great commission that God has given to us. This now for Paul, accomplishing that, is the big thing. This is the ultimate thing for him. Now let's just review Paul's story a little bit because he is one of the most intriguing uh, people that, uh, that we find in the Bible. The Apostle Paul was a man of great distinction. He was, uh, in his day, he wa- his resume, I think, would trump any of our resumes. Why do I say that? Educated in the finest schools, born a Roman citizen, trafficked in the highest levels of, of power and influence of the day, when the leaders in Jerusalem said, we need one guy to be in charge of our entire operation going against the, 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 the way, the Christ thing, who do we turn to? Who is the most influential, the most capable, the top dog to put in charge of this? Let's go get Saul was his name before it was Paul. Now, Acts 9 tells us the story. He was on the Damascus road. He's on his way to actually go and persecute Christians in the city of uh, Damascus, which even in the news today is still a very important city, if you know what's going on in Syria. Uh, and he's on his way, and he has a, a vision. Christ reveals himself. The risen Christ reveals himself to Paul. And here you have now the number one guy who's doing everything to defeat the cause of Christ, now has a vision of the risen Christ. And in that moment, there is this just colossal rearrangement of Paul's priorities and his life as he realizes he really is risen from the dead. And he becomes a follower of Christ. And in that moment, the priorities that had led him up to that point. He was a very ambitious man. He was a man around town. He was a guy on, I mean, this was a man on the move. All of a sudden, that changed. And his personal ambition about him went down. And what rose in prominence and priority for him was the glory of the one who had died for him and who he had seen risen from the dead. 
So it's not that he no longer had priorities. It's that what was truly important usurped what wasn't so important. As the old hymn says, all the vain things that charmed me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. I've used this illustration before, but it's, a, it's the best one I got. I think uh, uh, this is very similar to the children's playground equipment known as the teeter-totter. Are we all familiar with how a teeter-totter works? Just in case you are not, or for some of you it's been too long, let me review how a teeter-totter works. It's basically a long piece of typically wood, like this, and in the center, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mr. John Deere engineer, in the center is what is known as a fulcrum. Is that correct? Okay, good. My dad would be proud of me for knowing that is a fulcrum. And so the teeter-totter, basically, it, it's a thing where it goes up and down like this. And so children will get on the teeter-totter, and there's always that awkward moment when at first they're getting on. It's a little dangerous. And then they have to decide which of them is going up, right? And you always want to go up first. Which is going up? And it ha- you have to work in tandem because if... You, you both can't go up, can you? One has to go up and, and, and one has to go down. And so the teeter-totter does this kind of thing like this, back and forth. One going up while the other going down. I think this is a good illustration of what Paul is, is getting at here and really the story of his life. When Paul became a follower of Christ... There was in his heart now a reassessing of his perspective on his personal agenda, his personal comforts, the things that he naturally would want. And because he sees the risen Christ and because he becomes a follower of him, he says, you know what? That goes down. I go down because I want Christ to go up, right? In fact, in order for Christ to go up, I have to go down. You'll never see a teeter-totter that does this, right? One is going up and one is going down. And Paul says, for me, my life agenda, that stuff's not so important. For me, what is important, what I'm living for, is the glory of Christ. Making much of Him. Accomplishing the work that He's given to me. The teeter-totter. Paul makes similar teeter-totter kind of statements in Scripture. Let me read a few. Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Philippians 3.7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. And he's a man who had a lot. I count all of that as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them in my estimation as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
What do we find in each one of these statements? It is a value statement. It is a personal assessment in terms of my life and and the priorities of my heart. To me, Paul says, there is something that is not so valuable and there is something that is ultimately valuable. Like take the statement, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Who makes statements like that? That's like nutcase type statement, right? Death is gain? Because from my perspective, boy, death seems to be really loss, not gain. Because what do I lose when I die? I lose everything, don't I? I lose my uh, relationships. I lose my stuff. I lose my, um, my health. I lose my dignity. I lose my ability to operate in society. It's like death is the loss. It, it's, it's, it's loss. And yet Paul says, to me, death is gain. Why would death be gained for Paul? I'll tell you why. Because for him to live is Christ. In his life as he's living, Christ is his greatest treasure. So death to him is gain because in death, he gets what he was valuing in his life. Namely, presence with Christ. So from his perspective, death, hey, that's a, I can't wait. That's how we as Christians prepare to die. It's not by getting all of your insurance squared away and having the right nursing home or hospital or bed in the living room or whatever it is. We prepare to die by in our life valuing Christ more than everything in this world. So that when I die, I'm happy about it because I'm getting the thing that I love the most anyway, which is Christ. Maybe that's how we could be better witnesses in the community. What if every funeral at Bethel Church was the wildest party anybody had ever seen? People come to visit. You know, I do the funeral sometimes. People are like, what what is with these people? Are they crazy? No, we're so happy for them. And they would want us to be happy for them. Why? They've lost everything. No, they didn't lose anything they were going to keep. They cared for anyway. But they got the thing they wanted the most, which is their Lord and Savior. That is how death is gained. You see, it's a value statement. It's a priority statement. If he is my treasure on earth, he is my gain in death. So what can we say then about this? Here's what I want to say. Our struggle is not that we value our lives too much, but that we value Christ and his mission too little. And our lives reflect that, don't they? Our priorities reflect that. They show what we really value and care about. So that when Christ's mission asks us to do a hard thing, or maybe in the American church, something that doesn't work into our schedule, we feel tension inside. Like, oh, I don't like that. That makes me uncomfortable. It doesn't work into my plans for my life. I don't think I want to do that. No. We chafe inside. Why? Because of our priorities. Friends, when Christ is our supreme heart value, we prioritize Him and His mission 
above all other priorities, and we will give up gladly lesser priorities for the sake of the greater one. Now, to illustrate that today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to just do it this way. I've got here, got here a $20 bill. Would you verify, Frank, that that's a $20 bill? Yes. $20 bill, okay. I have a $20 bill here. I'm wondering today, would anybody exchange this 20 for a $10 bill? Okay, it's an honest, it's an honest offer. A 20 for a 10. Okay, that, okay, come on down here. I'll be happy to make that trade. You got, you, you got to have the 10, though. You don't have the 10? You know what? You know why nobody here has a 10? Because you gave it all in the offering. That's so great. So, no, I can go over on this side. Oh, you got a 10? Okay. And you'll trade me. Absolutely. Okay. And I trust you'll tithe on that. Uh, all right. All right. Just so I'm an equal opportunity kind of pastor, let me go over on this side. I have a $10 bill. Will somebody exchange the $10 bill for a $5 bill? Anybody, uh, anybody got, I see, I see hands everywhere. How about if I come, do you have it? Do you have it in your hand? You dig it out quick, ma'am. People think the sermon's too long as it is. <laughs> Got that five? Okay. All right, thank you. There, there you go. Congratulations. All right. I have a $5 bill. Will anybody exchange me for a one? Any one, takers on a one? Better get it quick. All right. A one. People are like, oh, he, he made his point on the first one. Why is he going on like this? All right, here you go. Just pull that one. There you, there you go. Okay. I have a $1 bill. Which I'll just give to you, sweetheart, okay? There you go. All right. Now, uh, these folks were willing to trade me. A 20 for a 10, a 10 for a 5, a 5 for a 1. Are they crazy? No, I could stand in the street corner in Chicago and do that all day long. People would be happy to do that, right? Why? Because we are more than happy to give up something that we value less for something that we value more. What is Paul saying to us? And what is he giving us an example? Simply this. When Christ is to us and his mission is the ultimate value. As we live our life, we gladly will give up the lesser value priority for the sake of the greater one. And the challenge for Christians is to make sure that in our heart and in our valuation, Christ is the ultimate. What He is doing in this world, His cross, His His mission is the ultimate thing. And God's people down through the years, all the time, giving up the lesser for the greater. And so can I ask you, are you maybe somebody... You know, here's the thing. What do you think when you see a Christian who's living for $1 bills? 
Or as you look in the mirror and you look at your life and you're like, I think I'm, I think I'm, uh, I think I'm, I think I'm living for a $5 bill. From Paul's perspective, we're the crazy ones. John Piper writes this, There is in the air an absolutely relentless message from every corner that you should be comfortable. Do yourself a favor. Minimize your pain. Maximize your pleasure. Reward yourself. The one with the most toys wins. Hardly anybody is saying, nor can anybody conceive the message, that he who loses his life for my sake and the gospel finds it. And so the message that the greatest life is the life of suffering, sacrifice, and risk is almost inconceivable in the modern American church. And how true that is. And how true that is in my own heart. Last night as I went to pray on my prayer walk, getting ready for the services, to to see in my own life how I have lived for the $5 bill. Value that as way more important than it ought to be. We go back to the book of Acts. We say, okay, well, is it just Paul? No. There are two, two martyrs listed in the book of Acts. Stephen is the first martyr. Gave up his life for the gospel. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. James, the brother of John, is the first apostle that is killed. The text says Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Why would they do that? Why would they allow themselves to be killed? How about suffering? Acts 5, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, if you came to church today and there were a group of thugs who said, you all Christians, and beat you to a pulp and sent you back to your car, what are you doing as you go back to your car? Are you saying to yourself that, boy, this was a really great day at church? (laughs) Would you be rejoicing? We see them. Why do they rejoice? Priorities. Acts 16. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Again, if I could ask, if you've been beaten, it's midnight and you're thrown into jail, what are you likely not doing? Probably the very thing that Paul and Silas were doing. It says about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Paul says to Silas, man, I got bruises all over here. Silas goes, I know, I'm, I'm bruised over here. What should we do? Let's sing. Where does that kind of joy come from? It comes from a teeter that has tottered properly. I go to Hebrews, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, after you came to faith and understanding, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and... You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. If you go home today from church and everything is out of the house and there's a big sign on the front door and it says, you stupid Christians, what do you do? Do you say, this is a great day to be a Christian? 
joyfully accepting the plundering. Okay, we're all human. You know, at first we're like not so happy about it. They were human as well. But their priorities kicked in and they recognized, you know what? We are doing this for the name of Christ. Joyfully accepting the plundering. So I think we rightly ask Paul and Peter, James and Stephen and down through history, so many Christians who have suffered so many things, how and why did they do it? And you may not realize all the things that our brothers and sisters have gone through. If you don't, read the Fox's Book of Martyrs and realize what our brothers and sisters down through history have gone through. And you might be like, well, that was back in the day. It's not true anymore. More Christians died for the name of Christ in the last century than all the other centuries combined. We just happen to live in this little bubble here in American Christianity where we can kind of come to a nice church and sit very comfortably in our air conditioning and then get back in our car and go on our way and it's all very sort of safe and, uh, you know, it's, uh, we feel very secure in this. That is not the experience of our brothers and sisters in Sudan, Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and on and on you could go. Now, in saying that, I don't think Paul woke up in the morning and thought to himself, I hope I get beaten today. I hope today's a day that I, somebody just wails on me. He's like us. They all were like us. They're normal human beings. We don't embrace suffering or, 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 or look for it. But when it happens and when it comes, what is revealed is which direction our teeter has tottered. And who we are living for and the priorities of our life. For us, Christ must be greater. God's work must be greater. To the loss, if necessary, of everything else. Which, by the way, is what happens when we die. Which all of us are going to go through. Now let me speak to our church in application How does this relate to us? Because again, if I was preaching in China or Sudan or somewhere like that, I would end this message differently. I would talk about, first of all, martyrdom for Christ's sake and what it means to gain in martyrdom. Or maybe I would talk about persecution, uh, severe persecution, and what it means to go through that for Christ's sake. But I don't see on the immediate horizon that being God's call for most of us here today. We happen to live in a country where we have rights and freedoms, for now, which allow us to express our faith and to follow Christ in ways that generally don't create death or uh, severe persecution because of it. I do believe, however, this is very applicable to us. It's just applicable in a few different ways, and there are many. I have three. God may not call us to give our life, but I do believe for gospel ministry, God's call upon each of us is that we, that we totter the right direction and that from a priority on God's work in the world, we have tremendous flexibility, is my first point, tremendous flexibility as it relates to what it means to be a part of a church that is trying to reach people for Christ. You know, in order to fulfill mission them, as we've been talking about, some of us are going to have to die to our personal preferences. Okay? We're going to have to die to our personal preferences. 
When you find a church that is fighting about any number of things, it is a church that has lost perspective. They have lost perspective on what the big thing is. And when that happens, and that teeter totters this way, Christ goes down, and then some pet issue, some minor thing, is elevated to a major thing. And the main thing is not being kept the main thing. I'll tell you uh, today that if I was to have my personal preference, my personal preference would be that we would... Uh, be a church that met in one location for one service, one day, every weekend. I'd love it. I wouldn't go home exhausted. I would get my Saturdays back to golf or to be with family or to golf. And (laughs) I would love that. I would. That would be my personal preference. However... It's not about my personal preference, is it? Now, if some of you, somebody here had 15, 20 million, you want to drop on us to do that, we would still prayerfully consider it. But it's our, for our perspective that stewardship's call is not to do that and to multiply disciples through multiple services and multiple locations throughout Northwest Indiana. We see that as being a better steward. And rather than having everyone come here, we're going to kind of take everyone and go, go there. That's the plan. A heart treasuring Christ above all things is somebody who isn't likely to let a small thing become a stumbling block in accomplishing the big thing. So I want to ask you, are you prepared to flex away from some of your personal preferences in order for us to reach people for Christ in Northwest Indiana? Now, one reason I say that is that we, we are on the cusp of what I think is, going, is, a, is likely a personal preference for all of us that we're going to need to totter a little bit on. And that is that uh, we are about to kick off uh, the, the utilization of technology and high-definition video to our multiple locations. Okay? Now... Is that absolutely perfectly ideal? I think everybody says, no. Okay, it's not. But by doing that, we have consistent teaching across all of our campuses. It allows the preacher to be in different locations and have face time with different locations. And uh, there are other advantages to it. And so we have invested heavily in equipment and people. There's a whole crew of people in a production room back up here. You, don't, you can't even see them. Thank you for those of you that are serving up there. And they're managing all of this. We've done that because we see this as being better and more effective. And we're ready to go live with occasional high-def video sermons here on our Crown Point campus. Now, if that's a big deal to you and you're loathing the sacrifice that you're going to have to make, I just want you to realize the conversation that you're going to have to have in heaven someday. Someday you're going to meet somebody uh, from the first century church. Let's imagine how this conversation goes. Hey, great to meet you. Good to meet you too. What, what era were you from? I was from the first century. What, how about you? Ah, 
that? Late 20th century, early 21st century. Cool. That's great. You say, hey, what was it like to be a Christian back in the first century? What was your experience? He says, it was great. First, they took all my stuff. And then when Nero kicked us all out of Rome, we were fleeing, but then we got caught. And he hauled us all back into Rome and we were impaled on poles and lit on fire. Now that is absolutely historically true. Okay? So you were 21st century, huh? Yeah. So what, uh, what kind of sacrifices did you make for Christ? Oh, it, it was rough. Occasionally, I had to watch our weekend teaching on high-definition, multiple-angle video. I'm just saying, okay? (laughs) These things have to be put in perspective, do they not? Have I made my point? Okay. Secondly, generosity for Christ's sake. Here we are in America. We're so thankful for this country coming off the 4th of July to be reminded of how God providentially placed this country, made it what it is. It is a privilege to be here, and it is a privilege to live here as a citizen. Absolutely. Thank the Lord for the United States of America. Because of that, though, we're probably not called to martyrdom on the immediate horizon But part of what that means for us, we may not be called to give our life. But what do Americans value more than anything else? Money. And what do we have more than any other Christians in the history of the church? We have money. And so, our brothers and sisters around the world and down through history giving up all kinds of things, I would suggest to you, That at the very least, American Christians who are not called to give up their lives can and should be generous for Christ's sake. Here's the third. As I'm just calling it personal involvement for for Christ's sake. There's an old story, maybe you've heard it before, of the tightrope walker across the Niagara Falls. And he was there one day and a big crowd gathered and he was going to walk across the tightrope with a wheelbarrow. And he says to the whole crowd, how many of you think I can walk across the Niagara Falls on a rope with a wheelbarrow? And they all cheered, yeah. He says, which one of you will get in the wheelbarrow? (laughs) Silence. It's easy, isn't it? To sit on the sidelines, to be a cheerleader, yay, yay, and to not get into the wheelbarrow, to not be personally involved in it. And one of my concerns, one of our leadership's concerns as we move forward with this is that somehow here at Crown Point, there might be a kind of perspective as we send 200 people over there and 300 people over there and whatever, however this ends up uh, playing out, that there would be people here that would say, as long as it doesn't change anything for me, then yay, you people go and I'll cheer for you on the sidelines. 
and to miss the fact that God's call upon us is for every single one of us to be Christians on mission, to be, to be Christians who are prayerfully doing all that we can with our lives and in the spheres that God places us to make a difference for Christ. So it is not simply there and there and there and them and them and them, but all of us with hearts breaking at the Athens we live in and the people that are dying apart from Christ and with a heart of love and compassion having received this same grace from God to live and to speak as a missional kind of Christian. All of us together. And so I want to ask you, would you sincerely pray to God as sincere as you can God change my heart and priorities to reflect what I believe to be true that Christ is the big thing and his mission is the big goal and don't you think an honest and sincere prayer to our heavenly father saying that would be received with his pleasure. I think so. And so let's pray right now to that end. I'm going to give you a moment quietly, and then I'm going to ask you to stand, and I will lead us in a prayer. Let us pray together. Let's quietly stand for prayer. Father, t-